You're listening to the Kitchen Scene Investigator Podcast. Hi, loves. Welcome to Kitchen Scene Investigator. I'm your host, Nikki Girado. Through this podcast, I dig deep into my experiences in food, wine, and hospitality with the help of a few friends to help you gain swagger along your culinary journey. But first, some housekeeping. Uh, Please support this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. I would love your constructive feedback. For more information about the podcast and Kitchen Scene Investigator, visit my website, kitchenscenainvestigator.com. All right, on today's show, we are going to talk about those fussy French words. They're popping up on menus everywhere. I used to see this all the time at the restaurant. People would come in, dressed to the nines, ready to have this amazing experience, and they would sit at the table, look at the menu and go, uh, what? Uh, they'd get stuck on like, shark, shark, can, what, what is charcuterie? Oh, and my favorite of all time. May I please have a glass of rose? Oh, she's so cute. (laughs) But honestly, honestly, that's something I used to think about all the time. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had a cheat sheet, right? Like a cheat sheet that breaks down those top French terms that are popping up all over the place. I mean, these restaurants are not even French and they have all these French terms on it. And it could really take you out of the experience. So that got me thinking, what if I invite one of my favorite people on the planet to come and help break down those fussy French terms? Well, lo and behold, ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to introduce you to my very first guest, Dr. Ariane Hello, Hello. Hi. Uh, Welcome to Kitchen Scene Investigator. Just a quick recap on her amazingness. Um, Ariane is a French professor at UCLA, has focused on culinary history, is a translator, a dramaturg, and my favorite part, an amazing performing artist. All of that in one person, an amazing dynamo. And she is here to be our guest, um, our expert guest, and be our eyes and ears to help us learn about these damn fussy terms. Um, we're going to go through fussy French, and then we will close the show with rapid fire questions that I will ask every guest. What are you drinking? What's making you happy? And your favorite food gift to bring to a friend or to give to a friend. Ariane, welcome. Thank you so much, Nikki. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm so honored to be your first guest on this podcast. That's really exciting. Very Thank exciting, you. right? So... I looked at the top 25 restaurants on TripAdvisor. I figured that's that's an even playing field, right? And of course, I looked at some of my favorite Michelin-starred restaurants, but I, I went down to even a, like local joints and eateries that are, you know, everyday eateries. And I looked at those menus and I saw that there are about, about 20, 25 terms that show up on every single menu, Right. And I was thinking, why don't we do our? Why don't we do the audience a, a service and go through these terms to help them, you know, gain confidence the next time they're out to eat. They can, you know, saddle up to the edge of their seat with some confidence and order charcuterie. I mean, I just love saying the word, right? It's a great word, right? Um, so why don't we? You know what? Let Let's go through this like a menu. Let's start from the top. 
amuse-bouche. I mean, just saying the word amuse-bouche is like I have a secret. I want to run up to somebody and say in their ear, amuse-bouche. Like, I know something. <laughs> uh, please let me watch when you do that because I would love to see the reaction. <laughs> I think I'll get arrested in L.A. But am I even pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, pretty close. It's amuse-bouche, if we want to be very Say correct. that again. Amuse-bouche. 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 Oh, I feel so luxurious. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, so it's a phrase that literally means amuses or entertains the mouth. And it's a little bite of something that is presented at the start of a meal to kind of whet your appetite, open up the palate. It's a chance for the chef to kind of get creative with something right. that, you know, maybe you wouldn't order it, but it's really exciting when it's just kind of presented to you. I love I love this part of a menu. In fact, when I was uh, still working in the restaurant business, um, it was really interesting to see how a chef would use a mousse-bouche because it's not really a course. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like this tantalizing first little bite. But it was still an opportunity for the cooks in the kitchen to show their creativity. So the chef that I worked with, Chef Seth Greenberg, he would use it as a way to vet skill and creativity and talent. Because some of the uh, uh, musebouche was gorgeous and composed little plates. And you can tell the creativity in the cook and, and their ambition to you know work their way up the brigade by how creative it was. But let me be serious. A lot of these were awful. <laughs> They were terrible. There were many times where I was on the floor and an amuse-bouche of uh, radish and salted butter would come out. And I was like, wait, am I not understanding something here? Like, who would send out radish and butter? Well, I have to say, I'm a big fan of radishes with salted butter. That's a really classic French um, kind of appetizer. But as an amuse-bouche, it's a little unusual. The great thing and the scary thing about an amuse-bouche is that it's such a challenge. It's like the, the chef has to present their whole thesis of their creative work in one bite. And when it works, it's miraculous. And when it doesn't, as you said, it's, it's a little bit, it can be a little confusing or a little off-putting. Um, so something like radishes and salted butter, it's a really classic combination, but on its own, it's not, yeah, you know, it hits, not the most exciting. It hits flat. I was really fortunate to work with chefs that thought outside of the box of what an initial flavor should be. Mm -hmm. So um, they they developed amazing agua frescas. Ooh. So basically um, flavored water from fresh fruit, right? And they would send out like cucumber mint or strawberry basil agua fresca. And they would be so delicious that customers would want to use them as the base for a drink. Another thing that the chef used to use uh, as an amuse-bouche was uh, gougère. Oh my lord, my French is so bad. No, no, you're doing great. It's so sad. No, it's great. I should um, be fired. <laughs> no. It's actually what's important. I mean... What's important in the kitchen is not how you're pronouncing it, but how you're preparing it. True, true. But right. it, but if I were to have, you know, public school French and be semi-okay at saying this, what what's the proper way of saying it? Gougère. 
Oh, Lord. Gougère. Yeah, don't worry about the R. Uh-huh. The R is hard. Try it this way. Gougère. Gougère. Oh, I like that. Yeah, with an American R. Well, just, well, it's a little bit fusiony, but it's a, it's a little easier. It's a little easier to say. That, Folks, that she's letting me off the hook by using this wonderful term fusion. Meanwhile, we all know my French is bad. No, it's great. I would probably not be quite so lenient with one of my language students because, of course, when you're learning a language, the point is to really learn the language. But when you're learning these terms to use when you're ordering in a restaurant, when you're cooking in your kitchen, when you're reading a cookbook, you know, it's not about the language. It's more about the the technique and what these words mean. So we can be a little flexible today. Well, thank you for letting me off the hook. <laughs> but I like that idea about it being more about the experience and the process versus um, exact pronunciation or, you know, really, really hitting it out of the ballpark you know, in the beginning, because I think, I mean, that's, that's part of the cooking process too, right? To allow yourself comfort in exploration. I mean, that's why I started this podcast is to, to share that enthusiasm for exploring. And exploring Gougeres was one of my favorite things to do. Because initially, you know, I have made petachou before, the dough that um, gougeres are made from. But it was... Go ahead. We haven't said what a gougere is yet. Well, that would be a really good idea. <laughs> a gougere is basically a little cloud of deliciousness, full of cheese. <laughs> we like cheese. <laughs> we love cheese. It's made from patachou, which is a specific kind of um, pastry preparation, which we'll maybe say a little more about in a minute. Um, usually with the Gruyere cheese, which is which comes from Switzerland, which has this delicious kind of nutty flavor. It's really, really good. Um, and I'm sorry, what's the name of the cheese again? Well, Gruyere, if you speak French, <laughs> and Gruyere, if you're grabbing it off the shelf at Trader Joe's. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, really, it's really delicious. It's a great melty cheese. Mm-hmm. And it has a really nice flavor. Um, so Gougere are basically like these sort of airy, light cheese puffs. And they, in my experience, they are a total crowd pleaser. They're one of my very favorite things to make when I am hosting a party. Because you can just pull them out of the oven. You can prep the dough in advance, bake them at the last second, and then serve them hot out of the oven. And people just go crazy for them. They're so, so good. They are showstoppers, aren't they? I love it. I love it. What's really interesting is at first when I was introduced to them, petachou, the dough that they're made of, for me was a was a sweet application, right? And my whole world of like easy first bites was blown away when I came across these at the restaurant. I mean, to think to add cheese to something that I would usually stuff with cream and sugar game changer, game changer for me. Do you have a recipe that you love to make? I do. I honestly can't remember where I got the recipe. It's It was in one of my parents' cookbooks and I learned to make it when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Actually, for a, I think for a French class project, we had to uh, we had some, some project where we had to like design a menu, I think, because we were learning the names of different foods in French. The thing about patachou, which as you said, is often used for desserts, it's the same base that you'd use for cream pro- cream puffs or profiteroles, profiteroles. It's the same. Wait, did you catch that one, folks? Say that again. So cream puffs, mm-hmm. also known as profiteroles mm. or profiteroles. 
Yeah, I know profiteroles really right. well. <laughs> um, also for eclairs, mm-hmm. right? Right. It's just, it's a fantastic base for both sweet and savory applications because the dough doesn't have any sugar in it. It's right. really just um, water, butter, flour, and eggs. Very right. simple. But it has so much water in it, which is really unusual for pastries. And you kind of cook the dough before mm-hmm. you bake it in the oven. You cook it on the stovetop. And when it has that much water... It means, first of all, that because the flour has been cooked, it's thick enough that you can pipe it out in shapes so you can make really fantastic, beautiful creations out of it. Mm-hmm. And it holds its shape before it goes in the oven. But then as it bakes, all of that water that's in the dough turns to steam and it creates these beautiful layers, these big pockets of air. So even something that sounds very rich, like a cheese puff or a cream puff sounds very rich, it feels very, very light and airy because of all of uh, because of the way the dough is structured. Right, and that's exactly what got me excited about them when I came across them at the restaurant. Um, they were light, fluffy, flavorful, interesting, and um, and you can eat them in one bite, which made me so happy. They're great as a sort of blank canvas because you can add other ingredients to flavor them. So you could add chopped herbs, you could add ham or salami. There's really a million different things you could do with it. I used to see the chef uh, whipped uh, whip, uh, like whipped cheese with little pieces of um, guanciale. Oh, wow. That Stuff. sounds amazing. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. What's guanciale for so, our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> so guanciale are uh, pig jowls that um, there's a number of ways to prepare them, but um, they they are usually processed, uh, they're cured, um, sort of like bacon, in a way. Right. So sort of like bacon, they're cured, but are they smoked like bacon is? Ah, yes. You know what? Let's put that in the show notes. Uh, different recipes for guanciale. And I, I think that's a that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. And and I, I want to give listeners um, resources that they can go back to. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about gougeres. We've talked we've talked about amuse bouche, and now, <laughs> oh, I'm so excited! We get to move on to um, a plate that you see on every menu, whether it's a five star restaurant, a Michelin starred restaurant, or a local eatery, and that is charcuterie. And I I'm, I I really want to start with with saying in Jersey that's like deli meat. <laughs> it is. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's the French word for for deli meats, basically. Um, charcuterie, if we want to be very correct, or charcuterie, is the big category of cured and preserved meat product. This includes things like ham and salami. It includes every kind of sausage, fresh, smoked, cured. It includes things like pâté. Uh, And we think because the word is French, we think of it as being fancy. But honestly, a hot dog is a form of charcuterie. Really? Right. It's a sausage. That's correct. Right? That's correct. Yeah. I didn't think about it that way. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating that something that was previously something in the domain of peasant food, you know, they were using the curing technique or the cooking technique to extend the shelf life of their meat, is now a luxury item. And sign me up. I know my favorite is porchetta. What is your favorite? I love porchetta. Mm-hmm. Although it's interesting because I don't always think of that as being a charcuterie. It it depends on, I think it depends on how it's prepared. Because mm-hmm. you can get it as something that is sliced in the deli. But my first encounter with porchetta was actually as a fresh pork roast. 
oh, which okay. is um, mm-hmm. which is how it's often prepared in in Tuscany, where it's a whole uh, it's like a suckling pig that has been roasted and right. or the where it's a, a cut of pork that has been rolled up with herbs and has been slow roasted and you can you can put it in a sandwich so you know right, right. sign me up as you said i think the italian version um that you see in restaurants is the cooked version mm-hmm. and what you're seeing um in french applications is a roll a rolled loin that has been cured mm-hmm. with the pink salts right and the herbs and spices in the middle so chef would prepare the loin that has been deboned and um, seasoned. Then he rolls the loin and butcher ties it and cures it for a period, a short period of time. And then after the curing process, he uh, ro- roasts it uh, low and slow. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite version. That sounds delicious. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. There's one of the things that's interesting is that these words can have a slightly different meaning depending on the context, right? So the restaurant context versus the you know stall in a market in a city somewhere in in Tuscany context. Um, the Italians have a word for this category of cured meats also, which is salumi. It means exactly right. the same thing as, as charcuterie. And you see that on menus a lot too now. So if the, if the restaurant has more of an Italian bent, they might call it salumi. More of a French bent, they might call it charcuterie, but it's the same category of things basically. I don't know about you, but this talk of charcuterie is making me so hungry. Actually, I picked up some charcuterie for us to celebrate after we're done with this episode. And I found, um, I found sopressota, I found prosciutto, and I found uh, mortadella. Awesome. I love all of those things. (laughs) All of which, it's funny that we're talking about French uh, charcuterie and all of these are Italian. Italian. I know. (laughs) But they're all delicious. I mean, the other thing that's wonderful about about charcuterie as a category is that you don't have to be limited to any particular uh, geographical region, right? Right, Because these practices of, of making sausage and other kinds of, you know, smoked meats, cured meats, it's global. Right, right. Every region in the world has its own um, has its own set of traditions for creating those kinds of products, often meat, but sometimes also fish. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different. You know, you can whatever whatever kind of cuisine you're interested in exploring, right. you can find charcuterie options that go with that. I do like the the technique that my chef used to use. His basic the premise of his charcuterie board was build it around a star meat. And most of the time it was pork. And have that star meat be presented in different styles. So have it sliced, have it cooked, um, have it cured, have it roasted. It was all about creating a plate that had balance. So fundamentally you want the cured meats, but you don't want all cured meats because that would be so salty. In my book, you know, start with prosciutto. Right, right. You can never go wrong with prosciutto. No, I think we should just go and have prosciutto and wine. Uh, okay, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> so he 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 said, you know, start with cured meats, um, and then balance that out with cotto. Yeah, cotto means cooked in Italian. Excellent. Um, so cured, cooked, and this is where the magic happens. He would balance the fat, the protein, the saltiness of the meats with a beautiful accoutrement, mm-hmm. um, such as uh, olives and pickled vegetables, 
you know, jams that, that weren't too sweet. And of course, crusty bread, because every every charcuterie board needs to be accompanied with crusty bread or bread should just go with everything. And what you got was um, was a balance of uh, flavor, a balance of texture, a balance of salty versus semi-sweet with the jams. And it's just such a lovely experience. And you can tell a lot of, about a chef by what they put on a charcuterie board. I feel like, you know, places like our favorite restaurant around the corner, Republique, they just knock it out of the ballpark because the quality of their meats are amazing. And then you go to a more uh, local eatery and, and it'll be a little bit more pedestrian. But you know what? That's okay. Because it's all about having that balance of textures and flavors and salty and sweet. And, mm-hmm. and again, that's something that, you know, if you are feeling adventurous and want to make your own pickles make your own uh, make your own jams or chutneys you can always do that and it's a way to put something homemade that's relatively easy to do onto a plate of store-bought things but if you don't want to do that those things are again things that you can that you can buy so much of entertaining is about shopping as much as it is about the actual cooking i often hear from friends who are like how do you how do you throw dinner parties? You love to cook. I don't really love to cook, but I love to have people over. And that's one of the ways in which you can make that happen, right? Is to find things that you can that don't really require a lot of cooking, just kind of putting things beautifully on plates. And you would be surprised um, the quality of products that a chef has access to that they don't necessarily uh, make, you know, in the kitchen because it. It's a better uh, guest experience to bring in really quality uh, meats from a vendor that sources directly from Italy. And it's not just chefs who have that kind of access to quality ingredients. All of us do. I have, uh, as you have heard, I speak a little French. <laughs> I grew just up, a little, folks. Just a little. Just a little. Uh, I grew up speaking French because my family is from Lebanon, which is a, a largely French-speaking country, and I have a lot of family in France. So I was very lucky to spend a lot of time in France when I was growing up. And because of that, I got to sample all of these wonderful things, which at the time were really not easily available in the United States. These kinds of cheeses, these kinds of pâtés, they were incredibly difficult to find. So it was very hard if you wanted to share some of these things with your friends. But now you can find these kinds of ingredients, the French cheeses, the pâtés, the cured meats that come not just from France and from Italy and from Spain, but from all over the world. You can find them in almost any grocery store these days. I agree. I feel that what we're seeing in the grocery store has is now on a completely different level, whereas the international aisle had soy sauce, and that was the extent of it. But because grocers are really listening to their shoppers and are tapping into the unique cultural uh, choices and tastes um, of their shoppers in their neighborhood, you're starting to see what used to be the domain of the international aisle just be in, you know, a meat or a cheese or a condiment, which in my book, it's just wonderful to see this evolution of the, of the shopping experience. And I highly 
I highly encourage our listeners to go out there and venture and try something new, even if it's something that you saw on a menu that is that was a French word and you want to learn more about that. And I think charcuterie is one of the greatest ways to, to, um, to venture out. Yeah, I mean, charcuterie, the way that it's most often presented on a menu is some kind of delicious salty pork. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's not to love, right? <laughs> Sign me up. And if you don't eat pork, there might be some delicious salty duck. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Um, you can have duck prosciutto, like the um, the one we had at Cass. Is it Cass? I think it's Cass. It's Cass, right? Oh, it was delicious. It was smoky and sweet with that beautiful fat layer along the edges. It was absolutely delicious. Mm -hmm. If you're in LA, the two places we love to go to <laughs> for charcuterie is uh, Republique and Cass. It's right around the corner from us. And yeah. Oh, and if you want to have an amazing Gougere, another place that's in the neighborhood uh, where I went a few weeks ago and they had Gougere on the menu was Otis and Penelope. Oh, yes. And they were fantastic. They were like the size of your fist. And oh, wow magically cheesy and delicious. That's the one thing about this category because I saw it across the country. I mean, in Chicago, in South Carolina, in Dallas, in Seattle, in New York, in New Jersey, all of these menus from these different neighborhoods had charcuterie on it, which is really delightful to see. So we've talked about charcuterie, and now I want to segue to my favorite part of the menu, and that's main course or Entree, is that correct? Entree? It is correct. Although this is another, I'm going to put on my French professor hat for a oh, minute please again. please <laughs> do. Oh, please do. So in the United States, when we see the word entree in, on a menu, for us, it means the main dish, right? It's the sort of the center course of the meal. In France, entree means first course. So it's actually oh. the thing you have before your main dish. So it's kind of like an appetizer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't or know Not that. like an appetizer, more like a first course. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be it might be a salad or it might be a soup or it might be a delicious decadent slice of foie gras. Oh, sign me up. <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad you you brought up foie gras because um you know, it's one of those it's one of those menu items whether it's the prepared dish or the actual ingredient itself and here in California, so let's talk about what foie gras is. So the phrase foie gras, or foie gras for speaking English, <laughs> literally means fat liver. And it's the liver of a duck or a goose. The liver has become enlarged because the bird has had a lot to eat. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the summary of it. And here in California, foie gras is a, a polarizing and controversial ingredient. And I don't want to gloss over that because I think it's important to to acknowledge the different schools of thought with foie gras. Because there's a camp that says it's, you know, it's cruelty to animals, the way that um, that the livers are grown and harvested. And there's another camp that says, well, you know, initially they gorged to get through the winter. So it's just, you know, a modern version of evolution, I guess. But I'm not here to talk politics about food that that will be a whole different podcast but the reality is that foie gras exists on so many menus it does and it's worth noting it has been banned in california um it's polarizing kind of everywhere not just here 
But one of the things I, I know you said, leave the, <laughs> leave the question of, of the broader political implications aside, and I, I don't want to go too far with it, but I think it's worth noting kind of what's at the root of that argument. So it's presented as a question of ethics and animal cruelty, which is something we should all be very considerate of and aware of. So the main argument is that the process of force feeding, which causes the bird's livers to grow, which is called gavage, that's the technical term for it, is very harmful and very cruel. And I'm not disputing that. The argument on the other side is that birds naturally eat a lot in the winter to build up energy for migration uh, Etc. Mm-hmm. And so some people say, well, this is just technology helping what's already a natural process. And I think, I don't think that that's a great argument, mm-hmm. to be honest. But the thing that concerns me about the foie gras argument, the efforts to ban foie gras, is that it is such a small industry, right? If you want to think of it in ethical terms, purely on the basis of numbers, the numbers of animals who are affected by this not to mention the number of human consumers. It doesn't come anywhere near the numbers in factory farming, right? That's something that is also extremely cruel to animals. We're talking pigs, cows, chickens. It's a massive industry, millions and millions of living creatures who are subjected to these conditions. It's bad for the animals. It's bad for us who eat the products that come from them. And it's really, really terrible for the environment. But foie gras is an easy target because it's a very small industry. It has these kind of elitist associations. So I think that people should be well-informed to make their own choice about whether or not they want to consume this product. I think it's really important to know how it is. I think with anything we eat, we should know where our food comes from. Absolutely. I think that's really essential, especially now when everything is globalized. You know, on the one hand, it's very exciting to have the whole culinary world at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it means that we have this burden of how much we have to think about where everything is coming from and how conscious we may want to be or may care to be about what we're putting in our bodies and what we're and what where we're putting our money, right? Um Speaking of where to put your money, this is something I used to see at the restaurant all the time when we would have foie gras on the menu. One of my favorite things to do was to um, was to open the eyes of guests um, to the idea of pair of wine pairing for foie gras, mm-hmm. and the classic pairing is with a sauterne. Yes, which is one of my favorite favorite wines on the planet. Just so good. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what a sauterne is? A uh, sauterne, if you're... Say that again? Sauterne. I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite resources that I consume daily, um, thank you, social media, <laughs> is uh, Wine Folly. And the way that they describe wine is so user-friendly. If you're looking for a great resource... Uh, to learn more about wine, especially in, in in little digestible bites, go to winefolly.com. It's fantastic. And this is their description of sauternes. So sauternes re- represent the sweeter side of Bordeaux. 
and is made from the region's rare white grapes. Built on the thin skins of Semillon, right? Semillon? Semillon. Semillon, with a bit of bright acidity, generously donated by Sauvignon Blanc, Sauternes make an exceptional dessert wine. And this is where I take a little exception to that. It's a dessert wine that that pairs wonderfully in this, you know, with this savory Mm -hmm. um, application. And Here's my recommendation. If you're at a restaurant and a server knows enough to recommend a sauterne to go along with your foie gras, get the sauterne. (laughs) It's such a luxurious and delicious experience. And, you know, in and of itself, a sauterne is delicious. It has wonderful um, apple and... uh, mature fruit undertones but when paired with the foie gras it just elevates the experience to um to a level that is worth getting the sauterne or or a nice wine or a late harvest riesling mm-hmm. Th- that would be my recommendation yeah i think that's great and i think it's i think it's great if i can take a tiny tiny detour <laughs> to talk about wine pairings i think you know a term like dessert wine makes it sound like you can only have it one way a term like sweet wine opens up the possibility of different kinds of pairings. And and I don't know about you, but I am all for doing unexpected wine pairings. I mean, people say, oh, white wine goes with fish. No, I love a red wine oh, a, with a, a, like a delicate with fish. fish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Sign me up. Exactly. So when you recommend it to your guests at the restaurant that they have the Saturn with the foie gras, can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. Was it fresh foie gras or was it present was it like a pate that is a fantastic question most of the time it would be two different presentations it would be a seared foie gras Mm -hmm. and it was accompanied with uh, like a berry jam and presented with a toasted brioche toast point Mm -hmm. seriously one of my favorite things to have the other way that it was presented was as a torchon nice um, do you want to describe what a torchon is? Sure. <laughs> you can help me out with this. We're geeking out. Here. Yeah. <laughs> We're really geeking out. A torchon, it refers to, to the twisting mm-hmm. mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. That you use to, so what you do is you basically wrap the liver in a mm-hmm. cheesecloth very, mm-hmm. very tightly, and then you poach it yes. or steam it. You poach it. Um, poach. You poach it, I think. In a, <laughs> uh, in a in a very light broth so that it mm-hmm. cooks all the way through. And so then it means that you can cut these nice, thick, even slices. Right. And it has a very, very smooth, creamy texture. It's, it's almost like butter. Yes. And it's incredibly decadent. And if you get, so you can get foie gras, you can, you know, if you, if you live in a, a place where it's not banned, <laughs> you can buy it in stores. Uh, you can most often the way you'll find it is in cans or in jars, and it will be from a torchon or it will be a pate or mousse or terrine kind of presentation, which means that it has been cooked and seasoned with other ingredients. But having it fresh and seared is incredibly luxurious. It is gorgeous and delicious. There's there's nothing like it. So if you're if you're feeling brave, uh, <laughs> I also recommend it and have the sauterne with it. And that pairing with the brioche and some kind of fruit, that's really thats really classic. I think what I want to do is put some resources on foie gras on the, on the show notes. Okay. Yeah, great. for listeners. I would love to do that. Now we're going to move on to a dish that I'm not a fan of at all whatsoever. But 
It is omnipresent and it's really having its resurrection or it's starting to become the bell of the ball on some menus and that's escargot. You're not a fan of escargot? I am not a fan. I'm not a fan. Really? I'm not a fan. The, the texture, I do, okay, I love the combination of garlic, butter, salt, herb seasoning. I right. love that combination. Yeah. Like I can have that for breakfast. <laughs> but I can I just can't get past the images. So why don't you describe for our audience escargot? So escargot is the French word for snails. So these are literally snails that are cooked and eaten, the same little critters that you see crawling around your garden. <laughs> uh, they are eaten all over the world, though. We think of them as being French, but they have actually been eaten all around the Mediterranean since antiquity. Um, archaeologists find piles of snail shells really? at, at settlements that are like tens of thousands of years old. Interesting. Yeah, because they are, you know, they're wild. They're easy, fairly easy to gather. They're um, high in protein. So they're, you know, they can be very nourishing if eaten in quantity. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, but, but the texture can be really off-putting to a lot of people. It's chewy. And I, I'm not doing the dish or, or the ingredient justice because it is wildly popular. I think perhaps I haven't done a lot of research on this, but perhaps it's seen as an ingredient that's kind of sustainable. Oh, I see. Maybe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that that might be one reason for it, or just that people are coming around to to appreciate it, and people maybe are just have become more adventurous eaters. Do you still enjoy it? I do. Although I went through a phase of absolutely refusing to touch them for a really long time. Why? Um, so the first time I had them, so as I mentioned, I have family in France, so I was lucky to travel there when I was really young. And the first time I had them, I was a really little kid. Uh huh. And I thought they were delicious because, of course, it's garlic and parsley and butter. And then you dip your crusty bread in the butter that's floating around in the dish. It's, right. it's fantastic. What's not to love? But I didn't really realize that they were snails. You know how when you're when you're very little, you eat foods, but you don't really realize where the foods come from. Right. Like you don't really realize. And there's that kind of awful moment, I think, that a lot of <laughs> that a lot of children have where they're like, this chicken used to be a chicken, like a walking around kind of chicken. <laughs> yeah. And it's very um, it can be very disturbing. So I had that experience with the snails. I mean, they come in the shell. The way they're served is the snail has been has been cooked, has been cooked, put back in its shell and the garlic parsley butter has been scooped into the shell, so it's covering the snail. Mm. And then they go under the broiler until the butter melts. So right. the snail is cooked before that. It's fantastic. And this preparation, which is the classic preparation, is called escargot à la bourguignonne, which means it comes from the Burgundy region of France. That's a setup. It sounds amazing it's like so that. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, you can put the garlic parsley butter on anything, right? Yes. But it is really good on the snails. And so... When I had this, I thought I didn't realize that the snails were actually snails. I thought the snail shells were just shells that had been cleaned out, and inside of it was a little bit of like chicken or beef or something tastes like that. Like chicken. Mm-hmm. It kind of tastes like chicken, <laughs> but like chewier. <laughs> and when you're, you know, five, six years old, you don't really make that connection until someone, a friend of my parents who was having dinner with us, said, Wow, you're kid is a very adventurous eater, especially for an American. <laughs> How does she like snails so much? And that was when I sort of, the it clicked uh-huh. that escargot were literally escargot. Mm-hmm. 
And after that, I wouldn't touch them (laughs) for years and years. And then when I was 15, I was visiting family in Lebanon and my aunt was cooking snails for the big Sunday lunch for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that this was happening, but I loved to be in the kitchen. It was my favorite place to be. So I just volunteered to help with anything. So she said, follow me. We went into the garden shed where they had the big boiler pot. So anything, you know, homemade French fries or falafel or anything else that needed to be deep fried would happen there. Mm -hmm. Things that had to be boiled in big pots would happen there. So a giant pot of water and a sack of snails hanging off the wall. And she dumped the snails into the water and handed me a big wooden spoon and turned on the heat under the snails. And she said, as they start, as the water starts to get hot, (laughs) they're going to start to crawl out of the pot and you can't let them escape. (laughs) So my job was to stand there. This is terrible. After I went off on a thing about animal ethics a few minutes ago, (laughs) my job was to stand there with the wooden spoon, poking the snails back into the pot as they tried to escape. Talk about knowing where your food comes from. It was really intense. How, um, was, how was your average? Did it, did you get all the snails back I, in the pot? I did not miss a single snail. <laughs> yeah, I was you like, did. you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to commit. It's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and I committed so hard that at, as we sat down to lunch, I was like, well, now I guess I have to eat them since uh-huh. I put all that work into them. And I ate some and they were not bad. And since then, I have come back around to them. Now I love them. If I see them on a menu, I will absolutely order them. I really like them. Oh, I just can't go there. I can't. But the Lebanese way of serving snails is really interesting, too. So instead of doing, as I said, where they were just boiling in a big pot, when they were done, they just got dumped out on the table on some newspapers, the way you do with like a shrimp boil or something like that. And everyone kind of picked out their own. And instead of garlic butter, I mean, I made some garlic butter because why wouldn't you? Um, but they served it with a sauce called tarator, which is made of tahini and lemon juice. Oh, that's delicious. It's really good. And it's a it's kind of a staple. It's the same sauce that you put on a falafel sandwich. It's the same sauce you put on fried fish. It's really, really good. So mm-hmm. that's what they that's what they ate with the oh, snails. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll maybe that's the little push that I needed to uh, to try escargo. I wanted to move to my favorite technique. We're still in the entree portion of the menu, but this is a technique that you'll see in starters. You'll see it in the entree. You'll see it um, in tasting menus. And that technique is confit. Am I saying that properly? Yeah, confit. A confit. Yeah, the T is actually silence. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, French is so tricky that way. It is tricky that way. Like, here's a bunch of consonants. Don't pronounce any of them. So what exactly is confit? I came across the perfect description for it uh, from Sirius Eats, and it says, confit derives from the French term confire, right? Confir. Oh, confir. Ooh, (laughs) gosh. That sounds serious. Sorry, it's close. It really close. I'm yeah. getting there. I'm getting there. Getting I'm getting there. there. Um, that simply means to preserve. Like traditionally, confit simply refers to any sort of you know preserved food, whether it's meat or fruit or vegetables, and this preservation takes place by slowly cooking food in a liquid. You know, and, and that liquid is inhospitable to bacterial growth. I know people that are inhospitable. <laughs> With fruits, it's concentrated sugar syrup, and with meats and vegetables, it's pure fat. Mm-hmm. And once it's cooked, um, you pack it completely submerged 
in that liquid, creating a barrier. So storage is just as important as the cooking method because it creates this environment where the connective tissue slowly breaks down and tenderizes. If you can do that to meat and you can do that to vegetables and you can do that to fruit... Uh, you get the big gold medal in my book in terms of confit. Now I understand that you're a big fan of it too. I am. I will eat a confit at any opportunity. <laughs> and I have also made confit. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have made duck confit. It's quite a process. I've only done it once. I sort of wanted to do it once to see if I could do it. I, have you ever made it before? Oh, yeah. 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 It's great, but it's a it's a bit of a process. It's a commitment. It's a commitment. The day that I did it, actually, a bunch of my when I lived in the Bay Area, I ran with a circle of uh, very dedicated um, home cooks mm -hmm. and one professional cook, <laughs> and we all uh, we would sometimes get together and kind of workshop new techniques. Okay. So one day we had a duck confit workshop workshop or party. That's where serious. We, yeah, it was great. We all brought. We each brought a duck or uh -huh. two, uh -huh. um, and we processed them, and we made the things, and everyone took home a few jars of confit, and it was fantastic. It was really good. So were you? when were you first exposed to confit? Like, was, was this in your family history, like in, in the kitchen? Did you cook confit at home? No, we never cooked it at home. I I did have it when I was pretty young. I, as I mentioned last time, I have a lot of family that lives in France, and I was lucky enough to spend some time there as a, as a kid. So I so confit has been in my life <laughs> since childhood, for which I feel very fortunate. But we never made it at home. That's something that I did on my own, sort mm -hmm. of when I was out and about with my own kitchen, because I wanted to learn. Um, but there are two kinds of confit that are kind of in the family repertoire. Mm -hmm. So one is the French style of confit, the duck or the goose. Um, so meat. So meat, right? Mm -hmm. But there's another kind of confit, also meat, which is from the Lebanese tradition. So oh, my family tell. is from Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And there is a kind of lamb confit that they make there called awarma. Say that again? Awarma. Oh, I love that. It's so good. And it's almost impossible to make here. So as you said, um, the confit is slow cooked in fat when it's meat or vegetables. And to make... a a proper awarma, you need lamb fat. And the way that it's done is with a particular breed of sheep that is almost impossible to find in the US, but that is very, very common in the Middle East and in many parts of Asia and in parts of Africa as well. It's a breed of sheep that carries all of its fat in its tail. Interesting. Yeah, it's called fat-tailed sheep. So the meat is very lean and it has a huge fat deposit in its tail. So to make awarma, you take the you take cuts of meat from the lamb, mm -hmm. and you take all of the fat from the tail, you render it down, you slow cook the mm -hmm. lamb. And so you have basically a lamb confit, and it's always, you know, you make it with sort of the bits and pieces after you have done with your butchering. Mm -hmm. And so it tends to be small, it tends to be chopped very fine. And you can do all kinds of things with it. You can just reheat it in a frying pan and put it on top of hummus. Sign me up. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. You can put it in a sandwich mm -hmm. if you want. I once had it at um, at my aunt's house. She she split open a baguette and covered it with awarma and then put it inside a panini press. And then we yes. just cut it in little bites. It was awesome. Yes. Yeah. Or my favorite way to do it, which is to have it for breakfast with eggs. Oh, that's delicious. So you reheat it in a pan. You crack some eggs on top of it. Mm -hmm. You season it with allspice and black pepper and salt interesting yeah it's mm -hmm. really really good mm -hmm. so uh so that so 
so confit is, as you said, it's just a technique. It can be applied in lots of different ways. When I was exposed to it for the first time, I only knew it through the lens of duck confit as mm-hmm. that classic dish. And then it was really like my understanding of you know, what Confit is all about really expanded when I started working with uh, Chef Seth uh, Greenberg here at the penthouse in Santa Monica. And the one thing that I didn't associate with Confit was versatility. Mm-hmm. I always thought about this technique that you use on duck. And it was in working with Chef Seth that I saw that you can apply that concept to so many different ingredients and this process of cooking it low and slow in fat uh like it 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 blew my mind i thought wait wait wait. you're gonna put tomatoes cover it completely in really good bait in really good fat and that's gonna turn into something that you would pay top dollar for and that's exactly what happened that was my entryway into learning the versatility because he would confit these little baby tomatoes with garlic and thyme and a little bit of seasoning and low and slow, like the baby tomatoes were floating around in the oil, low and slow for hours. And I thought that's going to be disgusting. <laughs> it's going to be completely gross. I think it sounds delicious. <laughs> well, I learned my lesson. So what happens in the process, because the tomatoes are completely submerged, is that that they're not being blistered, right? So air is not getting in and drying out the tomatoes. It's in its own environment where the sugars in the tomatoes are being developed. And because they're not exposed to air, the acidity in the tomatoes are not being obliterated. Mm -hmm. So you're taking what is, you know, it's it's delicious to begin with and you're like you're pumping up delicious by cooking it you know through this method and so the more i worked with chef seth i realized this is a concept that i can take into my home kitchen and as soon as tomato season pops in, I am ready to roll and it's really one of my favorite things to do on a weekly basis because It's not something that you have to stand guard over. So the key is to use delicious produce, a neutral, high-quality oil, and high-quality and high-quality herbs and spices. And you don't, you know, you just don't have to babysit it. You pop it in the oven on a Sunday when you're doing your meal prep, and. The applications of what you can use these confit tomatoes, it's boundless. I put it on flatbreads, I put it on pastas, and hands down, one of my favorite things to do is to like smash it as a spread on a sandwich. Like tomato confit, like a spread on a sub. A sub, that is the jersey in me coming out. Wow, who was that? But the spread of the tomato confit with fresh mozzarella and basil and call it a day. It is seriously one of my favorite sandwiches to eat during tomato season. A conversation that might be worth returning to at some point is why have all of these terms in French? You know, that's a really good point. These terms, they're they're not on the menu for frivolous reasons. Mm -hmm. They're when a chef puts 
a French term on the menu. It's for very strategic reasons. Either they're referring to an ingredient, they're referring to a region, they're referring to a technique, they're referring to a dish. And what they're doing by adding these terms on the menu is giving you like this this blossom of information in just one word. And that blossom of information helps the menu come to life and give the diner an insight into how the chef thinks. Culinary terms are are really having their day at the prom. The more global we're becoming as as a community of, of diners, the more we're seeing authentic terms on menus. And I applaud that. I think it's exciting. I think that it... Um, that it imparts respect to the origin of dishes and of, of uh, ingredients and of, of techniques. And I think that it expands the conversation of food and how we talk about food. Because the more we understand one another, the more we delve deeper into culture, the more we delve deeper into these terms, the more we are connected. And, uh, you know... I, I know I'm making, you know, a little fun of fussy French terms and the French are a little fussy. They are a little fussy. But the reality is that we're in this gorgeous time where how we talk about food is flourishing with so much dynamic language. And sure, when you sit down at the table and you look at these terms on the menu, it can take you out of the ordering experience and it could be a little bit challenging. But the flip side is, isn't that a great opportunity to learn these terms and then take it home? You know, maybe maybe this is an opportunity where you discover a new sauce or maybe this is an opportunity where you discover a new technique. I think that it is a ticket to exploration. And if it can start with confit, then hallelujah, let it be so, right? And I will now get off my soapbox. Okay, I love that you had confit and hallelujah in the same sentence. <laughs> I so appreciate that worldview. <laughs> and now I think I want to I want to turn the corner and talk about dessert. We are talking about coulis. Coulis, Dr. Hilou. Coulis is one of my favorite things to see on a dessert menu or actually on a dessert plate where I can actually eat it instead of just reading about it on the menu. Right. So coulis is, is, is not cooked, right? Right. It's a sauce. It's a, it's usually a thick sauce. It's made from typically from fruits, although there are versions that are made from vegetables. And all you do is you puree the fruit and then you run it through a, through a very fine strainer and it's usually served cold. So in the US, it's almost exclusively seen on dessert menus. In France, there are versions of savory coulis that mean slightly different things. Such as? uh, Such as it can be made from a vegetable. There's also um, like a seafood bisque is sometimes referred to as a coulis, even though it is cooked, Uh it's a a totally Mm -hmm. different thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But for our purposes, coulis is a cold fruit sauce Mm -hmm. made from raw, fresh fruit, when and it's the best thing to do when it's in season um and it's served with dessert so maybe you see like a chocolate cake with a raspberry coulis that's a very classic combination right. and it's one of those things that you can't go wrong with and a coulis is one of those things that's also very easy to make at home mm-hmm. right i do this all the time if i have good raspberries that are in season i throw them in the food processor and then i strain them mm-hmm. uh, and i don't even have like a like a temi like a professional french chef kitchen mm-hmm. strainer you know one of those mm-hmm. one of those 
extravagant cone shaped deals. Right. I just put them through like my strainer from Ikea. Um, I mean, I do mean a mesh strainer as opposed to like a colander, but that brings up a very good point. I always say to my students, you don't need to spend tons of money on like restaurant level equipment because a lot of the equipment that you have in your kitchen can double as what you're finding in a restaurant. Right. And to be honest, there's a lot you can do without equipment. I'm a really big fan of meals, especially, you know, if you're traveling or if you're staying at someone's house or if you've just moved and you don't have your your kitchen set up yet, there is so much that you can do with one pot, one yes. good knife, yes, a wooden spoon. Yes. And that's kind of all yes. you need. You can do a lot with very, very little. That's actually one of the shows I'm going to be doing pretty soon. I'm going to do a boot camp on gear. Oh, love it. Right. And I'm going to talk about the essential gear that you need in your kitchen. But that that's that's for another that's for another show. You know, the first time I saw Coulee, I thought that, wow, this is a radical departure from what was previously done in French pastry. You had heavier sauces like creme anglaise and you had um syrups you had caramels um yeah what's it do you want to say something about what a creme anglaise is creme anglaise (laughs) or a creme anglaise in case anyone's so creme anglaise is a custard style um dessert sauce it's it's actually not that difficult to make it's um the the magic in making creme anglaise is tempering the eggs Mm -hmm. So basically tempering the eggs just means that you're introducing heat into the eggs with warm dairy, so so the warm cream, so that the eggs don't curdle. Imagine making a thin custard. It's basically the same um, fundamental ingredients. It's just a different process. It's used to complement desserts that have fruit. It's, It's a very classic French um sauce and I'll put that in the show notes. I have a really good ratio and recipe that I got from cooking school. So I will share the magic behind the scenes recipe for creme anglaise with you. Um but yeah, it's it's a grand departure um in in the pastry uh, portion of or the dessert portion of a menu to uh to move from a creme anglaise or a caramel or a syrup and and move on to coulis. And that happened with uh, Nouvelle Cuisine, right? Exactly, yeah. It did happen with Nouvelle Cuisine, which means new cooking, mm-hmm. which was uh, kind of a wave that emerged in the 60s and 70s, which really uh, put at the center of French cooking fresh ingredients, seasonal vegetables, kind of more minimalist preparations. So the kinds of sauces that you're describing, the syrups, the caramels, um, those are all things that are very labor intensive, that are very expensive, uh, that uh, require a lot of work, a lot of preparation and are very, very rich. So Nouvelle Cuisine is a little lighter, a little simpler. It was influenced in some ways by some French chefs who in the 60s and 70s were traveling to Japan and discovering a new kind of culinary vocabulary a new way of treating the ingredient, which was a little more focused on the ingredient as well as the preparation. The idea being to find the best thing and to treat it in a way that really showcased its essence. 
as opposed to what had been the traditional style of French cooking for the last several hundred years, which was a lot of sauces, a lot of very complex preparations, which could sometimes obscure the flavor of an ingredient, especially something like a seasonal fresh vegetable or a fresh fruit. So the idea of a coulis, which is a raw sauce, that was something that was kind of unheard of mm. in at least in sort of high-end restaurant culture. And nouvelle cuisine was championed by in France or in or no, in the US in, in, Fran- <laughs> in France. <laughs> uh, Paul Bocuse was probably the best known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. He was really a, a major figure in French cooking. He he died just last year. So right. yeah, right. which is kind of a, a we lost one of the titans of the food world. Um, it was actually 2018 was a big year for food food world losses it was yeah but he was one of the major figures Mm -hmm. and he's someone my you know my mother has several of his cookbooks Mm -hmm. so I feel in a way that I learned to cook from Mm -hmm. Paul Bocuse because those were some of the books that I grew up learning from he has he was he was quite a character just a titan of the industry I'll put some information and, and links to resources uh in the show notes about him and um well, that brings us to the close of our menu. I have to say, I have really enjoyed this. We, we've come to the end of the menu, and I just want to say thank you. I've enjoyed this a lot. I've learned a lot, and I went to culinary school and worked in the business for you know 15 years. But this has been such a pleasure, and I am so grateful to have you as my very first guest. But I'm not going to let you go so quickly. I ask all of my guests... Three questions, rapid fire. Ready? Okay. So what are you drinking? What is making you happy? And what food gift do you always give to a friend or a guest? So let's start with what you're, what are you drinking? What am I drinking? It kind of depends on the day, mm-hmm. but it's summertime. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of my very favorite summer drinks is an Aperol Spritz. Yumbelina. Yeah, this was a drink that I didn't know existed until I went and uh, spent a summer studying in Verona when I was in grad school several years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's delicious. It's uh, what, Prosecco. What are the ingredients? Yeah. It, so it's Prosecco, which is a sparkling Italian wine from, and it comes from the Veneto, which is the region that I was staying in. And it is usually flavored with either Aperol or Campari, which are both kinds of bitters. And I prefer the one with Aperol. And it's this kind of neon orange color. <laughs> it it looks kind of intense in the bottle, but it has this nice kind of herbaceous flavor. It's not quite as strong and bitter as Campari. And uh, I just enjoyed so many sunny afternoons on the piazza, sipping a glass of Prosecco, a glass of Prosecco or a glass of Aperol Spritz in the company of good friends, enjoying the sunshine. It's a beautiful summer drink. So now on to what food gift do you always give your friends? So my favorite gift for friends who are, say, having a housewarming or moving into a new place or, you know, young people who are maybe moving out on their own into a new apartment for the first time. Um, one of my favorite things is a cookbook, which is Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything. I think it's a really great, really accessible guide for someone who is kind of new to cooking. The recipes are really clear, really succinct, easy to follow, and it has a huge amount of variety. And you're seeing it right above I'm my seeing head. It right <laughs> above it's <laughs> one of my favorite books. That reminded me of it. It's yeah. such an approachable book. And then so finally, 
Um, what's making you happy in the food world? The fact that LA is back on the Michelin map. Yes. I think it's really exciting. Yes. They sort of didn't know what to do with us for a while Mm -hmm. um, because the LA food scene is so idiosyncratic. True. Um, and, but is also has been incredibly influential. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really great that that form of recognition is returning, right? It's not so much about the stars and the awards, although the stars are very nice for the restaurants who are getting stars, but it's more about kind of cracking the code of the LA food scene, putting it on the map and making it, trying to make it legible and accessible to visitors from other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And I think that's really great. I could not agree with you more. And so that's the end of episode one of Kitchen Scene Investigator. Thank you loves out there for listening. For more information about Kitchen Scene Investigator, please visit our website at kitchenscenesinvestigator.com. You will find uh, information about today's show and show notes on the site. And again, please subscribe to Kitchen Scene Investigator through the podcast um, platforms that you listen to. And I will see you next time. Bye loves.